This is episode 224 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Standards for Stem Cell Research, with Drs. Tania Ludwig, Peter Andrews, and Madeline Lancaster. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Drs. Tennille Ludwig, Peter Andrews, and Madeline Lancaster, big name scientists. They're on the podcast to talk about the ISSCR's initiative to propose standards for pluripotent stem cell research in an effort to improve rigor and reproducibility. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming up. But first, take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures with MTSER Plus from Stem Cell Technologies. The most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. MTSER Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash plus. And we're going to start things off with a paper that everybody's talking about, not just people in the stem cell field, but seems like everyone, my parents included, (laughs) that tells you something. This is, of course, Jacob Hanna's paper, this bombshell paper that's come out recently. It's it's actually still a pre-proof, I believe, in in cell. Um, The title is Postgastrulation Synthetic Embryos Generated Ex Utero from Mouse Naive ESCs. Here we go. Here we go, Daylon. We're we're here, man. Yikes. This is yikes. Not yikes. A little bit of yikes. Good yikes. A little bit of good good yikes. Wow, all around. That's for sure. I mean, this is building on the major paper that uh, the Hanna Group published recently. I think in 2021 that we also covered on the podcast, where they developed this roller culture for long term maintenance of uh, embryos, early embryos, and they're able to grow these things ex utero to an extent and a capacity and a duration that hasn't really been demonstrated before. And then this is basically the bombshell that's tacked onto that other bombshell, back-to-back bombshells from the Hanna group. No big deal, right? Yeah. So basically they're taking naive embryonic stem cells, mouse, to be very clear, mouse ESCs here, and they're using the same roller culture apparatus, co-aggregation approaches, a lot of custom media and culture and metabolism-based approaches to ultimately grow um, naive ESCs completely independent of fertilization, no mouse, sperm, egg, you know, uh, fertilization here, grow them into embryos, basically, quote unquote, synthetic embryos here, okay? So let's, you know, dive right into it. They, uh, they use this platform for prolonged ex utero growth of, of synthetic embryos, which they've demonstrated with natural embryos b- before last year, right? Um, to do this, they co-aggregated non-transduced naive embryonic stem cells um, with the, I think this is a really important part and we were discussing this before the show. This isn't a purely natural approach. So they did do some genetic engineering, genetic modification to do this because they were co-aggregating these naive ESCs with some cells that were overexpressing CDX2 and GATA4 to pr- promote their priming towards the trophectoderm and primitive endoderm stages, respectively, um, to ultimately create 
something that can have, you know, not only the embryonic tissues, but the extra embryonic tissues too. That's, that's the key here. Everything is self-contained, even though there are some genetic modifications that are happening here, but pictures say a, a thousand words and videos say a million words. And in this example, and if you, uh, scroll through the figures of this particular paper, you can see the side-by-side -side comparisons of the you know, E8.5 natural mouse embryos with these synthetic mouse embryos. And it's really quite astounding. So the genetic markers are there, as you would expect, different markers of, of neural tissue, cardiac tissue. They even, of course, had a picture of a quote-unquote beating heart in these synthetic embryos. It shows you the advanced nature of the embryos. Um, and it's really quite astounding. There certainly is a lot of interest in industrializing some of these applications. I think they actually have a startup spinning off of some of this work and some of the roller culture work as well. And ultimately, everybody's asking, oh, is this possible in human? Can we do this in human? Can we do this with human naive embryonic stem cells? And, you know, I, I don't like, I think Dr. Hannah is going to be the first person to tell you that the focus here is, is, and should be on the developmental biology and using this as a model for studying developmental biology. But those questions are arising through pop media, pop culture. Uh, people are already saying, oh man, are they growing humans ex vivo, ex utero in this sort of situation? No, we're not at all doing that here. This is a, a basic science study with tremendous applications down the road, I do think. And certainly there are caveats with this study. It's, it's beautiful and it's got am amazing pictures. But the overall efficiency of this process is still somewhat limited. You have the genetic modification to actually create these embryos, as I, as I mentioned, um, and this complex roller culture, right? I don't think this is something that everybody can adapt tomorrow. So all those caveats withstanding, still probably the paper of the year and worthy of discussion. Yes. Uh he may be the first, Jacob Hanna may be the first to say we should use it for developmental biology, but he's he's also going to be the first to file the patent and start a company that uses it to make human organs. I mean, so let's just be clear on that. And and the, I, that doesn't, you know, that, that, I mean, he would never, nobody, I don't think, is, is talking about actually applying this for cloning or whatever you want to call it to actually make a human embryo that's viable. But the idea of making organs, I think, is, is it's like, it makes sense. Um, I think it's pretty controversial. I think a lot of scientists would say that it may not be justified to make even an artificial embryo if there's a chance that there's some kind of, you know, neural capacity or, or what have you. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of controversies there to unpack. But just in terms of feasibility, I think we should just be clear. This is early days. And of course, the process is going to get better. And they're, they're I'm sure, have progressed already. But you know the the frequency of these ordered gastrulating embryos that formed the E eight point five that looked faithful to the native was very 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 few. I mean one in a thousand or something like that. We're talking about less than one percent. Um, and it tells you something, of course, that the previously used the roller culture to take these gastrula stage embryos out to like full organogenesis, you know. Um, and in this stage, they stopped at E eight five. So I would surmise that while you can get, which is amazing even to get like a pre-implantation stage or, you know, a bunch of cells, let's call it what it is, um, to form a pre-implantation embryo and then go to these post-gastrulous stages with all those organs that they showed in, in, the, in the article. I mean, re really, you got to take a look. It's amazing. But the fact that they didn't go beyond that um, tells me that it goes off the rails after that, and it's not unexpected. And I think it'd be a lot to ask 
for an embryo to go, you know, start to finish, um, not finish, but start to any late organi organogenesis stage where you could perhaps like take a fully formed heart or, you know, micro heart, whatever you want to call it, and, and see how, how functional it is, you know, as an end stage organ, I, I think we're still limited there. So uh, feasibility, still many obstacles. I don't think we need to get all of our, you know, underpants in a bunch about whether or not we're going to be making babies with this stuff. I think first things first, um, yeah, the developmental biology of gastrulation in a dish alone is nuts. And there's going to be a lot of careers that can be made on that alone. 100%. I, I'll go ahead and say this. If I was a new stem cell biologist, somebody who's just starting in this field, this is the kind of work that I would want to work on, to be totally honest with you. there's It's not just these synthetic embryos, but so many other amazing, amazing models of early development that are emerging, blastoids, gastroids, all this kind of stuff that, again, emphasizing the developmental biology part of it, it's going to teach us just so, so much. There's a cool factor to it, sure. And that's why it's being popped up in popular culture, popular news, why my parents know about it too, right? But the, the, it does come back to the science. I think this is going to help us learn so much more about early development of biology. Yeah, all you young, you know, evil masterminds that want to take over the world with the clone army, them too. <laughs> this is the time for you. You were born in the right era. Um, and all of us really were born in the right era. When you talk about the technical capacity we have to, to see into cells. You see the segue? I'm about to get there, Arun. I'm talking about a big new method. I mean, this is not a, exactly a stem cell paper, but whenever these kind of methods come out, I like to emphasize them because, you know, I hope to use them one day and I expect there's going to be a lot of stem cell biologists applying this specific method. And it's based on, you know, single cell seek. Single cell seek is everywhere. It's it's kind of, I wouldn't say single cell seek is dead, but it's no longer going to get get your paper into the high, high um, impact journals alone. Got to have some science there. Um, and part of the limitation on single cell seek, you could argue, is that you got to you lose the cell, right? Um, and that's the way it is with most of these, you know, genome-wide profiling methods, even not single cells. You got to destroy the cell in order to analyze what's in it. Um, and that's not to say there aren't alternative methods. There have been cell profiling methods that have emerged since single cell seek in recent years to get around the limitation of this destructive sampling. And, and those fall into pretty much two categories. One is this computational approaches where, you know, you infer uh, the cell trajectory based on a snapshot. This is kind of like the pseudotime analyses and all. there's a lot of different um, modules that have been developed on R that, that you can get into with Surat for that. Um, but, you know, those are limited, of course, because it's a snapshot and you're, you're inferring. It's based on statistical expectations ra rather than the actual transition path of those cells. The second category or is this tagging approach? Um, so you can tag a cell or tag some of the molecules in the cell. Um, and for instance, you can use like metabolic labeling of RNA so that you can distinguish the new RNA from the old RNA. There's other methods where you can tag a cell genetically and then you can track all the daughter cells, all the clones there um, and infer some relationships. But these are typically the second class of approaches really only applicable on short time scales or um, 
depend on these like the biological assumption that all RNAs, for instance, degrade at the same rate, right? Which is not necessarily something that we can take for granted. So enter the holy grail, let's call it. I mean, if I were in single cell omics, I would say that the holy grail is to be able to get a comprehensive unbiased view of all the transcripts or whatever in the cell, and then let that cell free, set it free, let it go on with its life. Um, here, uh, Julia Vorholt and Bart de Planck, who are from the Swiss Federal Institutes of Technology at Lausanne and uh, Zurich, respectively, they developed this tech called LiveSeq, which is pretty dope. Um, it's effectively just what it sounds like. They keep the cell alive after doing uh, transcriptomic profiling using a biopsy, a cellular biopsy. I mean, wow, we've reached this age where we're biopsying not cells from a tumor, we're biopsying cytoplasm from a cell. I mean, how low can we go here? This is using a technology called fluidic force microscopy, which is previously developed between these two labs. And it's just what, what I said. They, they take this live biopsy without inducing major cellular perturbations. They do some proof of concept work um, where they take uh, cytoplasmic biopsy and seek the transcriptome from individual macrophages before and after lipopolysaccharide stimulation. Also, they take adipose stromal cells before and after differentiation. And they show that they don't screw them up pretty much, that they're able to maintain their normal uh, biological function. And then mechanistically, you know, in order to demonstrate the, the power of uh, elucidating cellular mechanisms, they show using this kind of uh, tag and release, I guess we'll call it approach, live seek, they show that um, the basal NF kappa beta inducible activator, I guess that's what you call it, I don't know, NFKBIA. I just made up that name, by the way. You might <laughs> want to check on that. <laughs> but they show that this thing, the NFK thing, um, is important in, as a determinant of that reaction to the lipopolysaccharide. So uh, a great technique, you know, this would be in nature methods, um, just on the method alone, which is super high impact, but the fact that they actually use it uh, to prove the principle and then also uh, demonstrate the, the potency um, and value of it scientifically uh, made it into a nature article. So a big story, a great method. You know, you talked about paper of the year for uh, the Hanna group. This could be method of the year. I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, be surprised at all. Back to back bombshell papers. That's what we talk about here on the show. The big splashy papers sometimes, not always, not always, but this roundup, that's definitely what's leading off the roundup. You know, these two really high profile papers, and this is absolutely a game changer. I mean, non-invasive, you could say, uh, profiling of RNA and transcriptomics in single cells. That's really the dream. You can tag them and release them back into the wild, as you said, and they, they mentioned it's, it's not perfect. I think the next step is to kind of get the, the volumes needed for actual analysis smaller and smaller and to, to really improve on the overall efficiency and the, the sensitivity and the power of this, this live seek. But then beyond that, it's the multiplexing, right? How do you scale this up? How do you multiplex this with other omics technologies, you know, epigenomics, all these other things to, to really get a non-invasive look at what's happening to the cell. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, the proof of principle 
to me here is is the big splash because everyone can imagine a thing like oh wouldn't it be great i, I love the papers where it takes the wouldn't be wouldn't it be great and it just makes a reality just by saying yeah just do it already and, and the key there is the uh the fluidic force microscopy i would say what i'm waiting for also is uh something a bit more high throughput i mean the the whole principle of uh the fluidic force microscopy is it works on adherent cells so it's not it, it, the same as this you know 10x for example um where they have these chambers where the, the suspended cells are flying through at a high rate um so yeah uh, improvements maybe they can improve the throughput on an adherent level or maybe you could get a kind of different apparatus in terms of the the force microscopy that allow you to do it on suspended cells i i just at this point it would have to doing this show for as many years as i've been doing it I'm just, you know, setting the clock and setting myself a reminder to check in every few months for when that happens, because stuff is moving so fast. And once that hits, I mean, that's really going to change the game. And I guess LiveSeq is going to be dead as well. <laughs> and you mentioned just now that single cell is dead and that you can't get a major paper with just doing single cell. You lied because the the article that I'm about to talk about is a science paper actually coming from my former postdoc lab in the, the Seidman lab at the Harvard Medical School, uh, where they basically just did a bunch of single cell on a, the, I think the reason this is a science paper is they did something extremely difficult, which is to get a massive, massive data set from not only healthy human hearts, but also diseased human hearts, um, various types of heart failure, various types of cardiomyopathy. It is very tough to get enough primary healthy human hearts for single cell analysis, just it's, it's just hard to do. And to, to analyze those tissues in a way that's reproducible and reliable is, is also an astounding feat. So the title of this paper in science is Pathogenic Variance Damage, Cell Composition, and Single Cell Transcription in Cardiomyopathies. First author here is a, a friend of mine, actually, Dan Reichert. Um, and like I said, coming from the Seidman lab at the Harvard Medical School. So we know that, you know, heart failure is a problem. It's perhaps the biggest problem in the entire world. I'm biased, certainly, for, for saying that. But there are these pathogenic variants that cause uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, a thinning of the heart muscle, and also arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy or heart rhythm problems, right? And these pathogenic variants convey high risks for the development of downstream heart failure, but the mechanisms aren't always well-established, okay? So what they did here is they did a ton of single cell RNA-seq, like I mentioned, but specifically they did single nucleus RNA-seq. And I think it's important to, to understand why they did this because um, interestingly, well, this particular project was actually just getting started as I was finishing up my, my postdoc in the side of the lab. And the, one of the reasons why they were doing single nucleus as opposed to just general single cell seq on, on this cardiac tissue is because cardiomyocytes are notoriously difficult to incorporate into single cell methodologies because they're so big, they're so chunky, they have syncytia. And so distilling those myocytes down to their single nuclei is, is a way to get around that. I think certainly there's caveats to consider because you lose a portion of the transcriptomic profile just by eliminating the cytoplasm and just having the nucleus. But still, you enable a, a high throughput approach for analyzing cardiomyocytes and also other cardiac tissues as well. So they characterized the transcriptome of 880,000 nuclei from 18 control and 61 failing non-ischemic human hearts with different pathogenic variants in dilated cardiomyopathy and arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy genes or idiopathic disease. 
And then they kind of took this to the next level. They stratified their analyses of different cell populations um, and evaluated these hearts based on their transcriptional states. And they created, as a lot of these single cell paper papers do, a publicly available cell atlas that can demonstrate distinct right and left ventricular responses in these different hearts. They're highlighting certain genotype associated pathways, intercellular interactions, differential gene expression at the single cell resolution. I think this, if I had to summarize this paper, it would basically be, this is an atlas for the failing heart. Okay, this is a, a single cell atlas for the failing heart that I think the entire community can, can utilize. Um, and perhaps ultimately down the road, they can be utilized for identifying candidate targets, you know, for therapeutic options. Um, and, uh, you know, I think building on many years of work in, in cardiomyopathies coming from the Seidman lab, they're actually the first people to identify that, you know, uh, cardiomyopathies can have a genetic underlying. This has been done many decades ago, but they were the first to show that there are genes that can cause uh, cardiomyopathies downstream. So awesome work from, like, uh, like I mentioned, a former lab of mine, a uh, friend of mine. I'm biased, certainly, but I think a very high-profile paper and a, a tremendous resource for the heart research community. Yeah, well, the editorial board and reviewers at, at Science would agree with you. I don't think your bias is uh, too bad there. Um, and I'm not trying to throw shade on single cell, period, you know, but I just mean that it's not enough on its own. And this story certainly has a lot more to it, given the clinical impact and the sheer number of cells and the breadth of the study. Uh, I do, though, I, I, just because my own personal experience with the nucleolar or the nuclear versus the cytoplasmic single cell seek i found um you get vastly different not vastly different but significantly different results and it's very transcript specific so for instance in my case i found a lot of like the structural proteins um, membrane associated proteins um cytoskeletal uh, in my data set were much less visible. And I don't know, I mean, my intuition was like, oh, that's because they're in this in the, in the cytoplasm. But I mean, who knows what the, the reason is there. But the point being is that the data sets can be a bit different. In this case, I don't think it really takes away though. Because um, as you said, this is a resource of, and, and an atlas of the failing heart. And I think it, it serves as a really uh, valuable baseline and point and reference if you're looking at any kind of single cell or single nuclear data set moving forward. And I mean, it's apropos to our, our guests on this show um, in terms of the setting standards uh, across research groups, because yeah, the most important thing here is that my analysis is close enough to your analysis in the Seidman lab that I can directly compare my results to yours. And I think that's what's really critical about these atlases um, is that they get out there but as important or more important is that the methods are, are, are really de deliberately and, 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 and uh, carefully detailed um, so that everyone can be speaking the same language. So a, a really great study and something that's going to be referenced out the wazoo for sure. It's a benchmark. And I think these benchmarks will continue to evolve over time in part because of amazing technologies like the one that you talked about in your first paper, LiveSeq. What happens... 20 years down the road, if you can do a live seek on human hearts, I don't know, some I have no idea how this is going to be possible, but that's really the, the ultimate next step is, is real time analyses of cardiac transcriptomics um, in 
model system, maybe one day in, in the human. I don't have no idea who, have, who has an idea of how technology is going to evolve over the next 20 years. And that's part of the fun, right? That's part of the fun of being in a field as exciting as ours. Very exciting. I just want to tell you just right now and be very clear, Arun, you need to back up and get out of my heart. There's going to be no live <laughs> sampling of my heart. I'm not going to be your guinea pig, my friend. Um, but yes, in theory, let's start with your heart, Padme. We'll do some some live sampling of Arun Sharma's heart. We'll, we'll be famous. You might be dead. Uh, God forbid. Anyway, moving on. We'll live forever. This is a story about cancer. Oh, wah, wah. But, you know, the upshot here is that we might have a new method for treating cancer um, and training the body to sniff out cancer. And it's all due to induced pluripotent stem cells. That's why I chose this story. It was in Cell Reports, um, and it really brought together a, a lot of different strands of interest for me. You know, I love the blood. Um, this is kind of a CAR T story. It's about T cells, you know, the T cell uh, anti-tumor response. There's this tumor surveillance going on in the body, and it's based on recognition of these MHC class one associated peptides. Okay, we're calling those MAPs or MAPs that are on cancer cells. Um, and this T cell priming is achieved primarily by antigen presenting cells, which take up and then cross present the tumor antigens. Um, but this is kind of a limitation, right? Because the T cells are dependent on these antigen presenting cells uh, and the T cell will be ignorant to any tumor map that isn't presented by an APC. So one of the, the, the new ways the immunotherapies that's used is using these dendritic cells that are loaded with tumor antigens, the target tumor that you're afflicted with, that you carry, you load a dendritic cell um, bolus of dendritic cells with those antigens, and that'll kind of train your immune system by this cross-presentation, right? So that's a method, and there's like a whole ton of studies that have been done using all different kinds of maps and different kinds of, you know, cross-presentation in the, in the uh, dendritic cells. So that's a whole field in itself, but there's this other wrinkle here, which is that oncofetal antigens, so the the these antigens that are present on fetus, um, but are also shared in tumors, they're a, a different class of non-mutated, so like, you know, normal-ish, native uh, maps that represent really, you know, attractive targets for cancer immunotherapy. Um, and this is something that's been well acknowledged for more than a century now, that there's an antigenic similarity between embryos and tumors. Um, in fact, if you vaccinate mice with uh, embryonic material, it induces the killing of tumors of different origins. And, and this has been shown more recently um, by the WULAP, right, Arun? They showed uh, that, and others, that show that mouse immunization with irradiated uh, embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells, um, it can induce a, a, an effective long-term protections against multiple cancer types in mice, right? So there's a lot of evidence that you could use these kind of onco-fetal um, antigen approach uh, to, in order to, to induce some kind of tumor response or tumor surveillance, tumor surveillance. So based on this idea and trying to unpack that and unravel how it works, um, Claude Perrault and uh, his group at the University of Montreal they uh, aimed to characterize this process and used mass spectrometry to study the immunopeptidome of human iPSCs and to look for some kind of uh, uh, overlap 
with antigens that are shared by human cancers. They characterize the mapped repertoire from human iPS cells using this proteogenomics approach and identify 46 uh, of these plur pluripotency-associated maps, they call them, PA maps. I'm not going to make a, a more complicated acronym out of that. Um, that were absent from the transcriptome of normal tissues, but expressed in multiple adult cancers. Uh, they show that these PA maps were immunogenic, although interestingly, um, when you express the, the PMAP, PA maps in tumors, it caused activation of pathways that have been shown to be instrumental in, in uh, immune evasion. And these are like WINT, pathway, TGF beta signaling. So based on this, you know, it, it, based on the fact that the expression of these PA maps cause overexpression of these pathways, they surmise that perhaps these pathways could be uh, a target um, where you could inhibit, for example, these pathways, and that uh, might be a, a good uh, treatment, um, an adjuvant, so to speak, for the treatment of, of tumors, at least poorly differentiated tumors that have this uh, MAP profile that's similar to these oncofetal an antigens. So, you know, I, they didn't go the next step, which was to show that inhibition of these, path of these pathways would actually help with the cancer, but I liked it because I think it was an innovative idea. Um, and it kind of unpacked a bit, I think the mechanism, at least made the attempt to unpack the mechanism underlying this phenomenon that has been observed, um, I think for years now, but no one really has tried to understand why um, there is this overlap and how it can be leveraged for, for treatment of uh, malignancy. So a nice story, uh, in my opinion, from Cell Reports and the Perot Group. Yeah, this is a really cool concept building on, like you mentioned, um some other groups, including my former PhD advisor, Joe Wu, um, they had a study a while back, you know, that was, quote unquote, developing this tumor vaccine using iPSCs, because like you mentioned, there's some similarities in the antigens that are presented between certain cancer populations and iPSCs. Um, I, I, I do think the one additional point to mention, and they actually directly mentioned it in their limitations, these, you know, stem and pluripotent quote unquote cells that have some of these similar antigens, they only represent a small fraction of the overall tumor population. And perhaps it's, you know, really in cases of teratomas and other, you know, more undifferentiated tumor types that this can be the most effective and perhaps the most applicable. But no, nevertheless, I think it's a, it's a tremendous resource. And one thing to, to note, since we were on a single cell tear in this particular episode, that the transcriptomic analyses of their TCGA samples were actually only dependent on bulk RNA sequencing oh, data. Boy. Mm, shame, shame. Well, simple solution. Just use some LiveSeq, right? Can we do that? <laughs> go, go right to the gusto. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think uh, your point is well taken in particular because teratomas are like relatively benign, you know, they're circumscribed and not often, you know, malignant and that they don't spread. So yeah, your point is well taken that maybe these uh, cancers of, of uh, immature cell types um, are not so dangerous and they wouldn't, this approach wouldn't necessarily target the cancer stem cell or malignant um, cancer cells in, uh, in any tumor. So yeah, there's a lot of caveats there, but as I said, I think it's nice to, to scratch at the principle there and, and try and get at, um, some of the mechanisms. So I enjoyed it. 
moving on, you know, we're done with our single cell tear and we're going to get into quality standards in just a moment with the ISSCR leadership. But before we get there, a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there is a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, everybody. Joining us today from the ISSCR Standards Initiative Steering Committee, we have three illustrious researchers, Dr. Tanil Ludwig, who's from the Y-Cell, where she's senior scientist and director of the Y-Cell Stem Cell Bank. Also, we have Dr. Peter Andrews from the University of Sheffield, where he's Arthur Jackson Professor of Biomedical Science, recently emeritus. And finally, Madeline Lancaster, who's the group leader in the cell biology division at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the University of Cambridge. Tanil and Peter are co-chairs of the ISSCR Standards Initiative Steering Committee, and Dr. Lancaster is co-chair of the Stem Cell Derived Model Systems Working Group. All of you, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here, thank you. Yes, uh, we're certainly looking forward to, uh, to the, the discussion. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really, really great to be here. Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive right into it. A, a bit of a background here, right? The ISSCR recently launched this standards initiatives for pluripotent stem cell research, and I think this is really important since, of course, universally accepted characterization standards for stem cell research are needed to improve the reproducibility and the rigor of stem cell research and standards set up researchers for success, ensure rigor, all that good stuff, and ultimately can strengthen the pipeline of therapies for patients. So, you know, the ISCR is the foremost international stem cell society with a great reputation for science and uh, scientific and ethical rigor. So, you know, I think this is a, it's a really important initiative and it's worth discussing, discussing in depth. Um, let's kick things off for, uh, with you, uh, Dr. Ludwig, you know, what are some, uh, why, why are these standards so important? So why are basic research and preclinical -pre standards so badly needed in our field? You hit on some of it already, the, the improving the rigor and reproducibility uh, in order to strengthen the science overall, to be able to increase the ability to compare the research uh, from lab to lab, from place to place uh, around the globe. Um, and we're finding at YCell, we work as a, a bank, a distribution point. Groups from all over the world deposit cell lines with us. Uh, for distribution. And what we're finding is that the material we receive, fully 35% of it, has major flaws and problems that would make it um, inappropriate to collect sound research on. Um, the research would be unreliable in some way. It either has a, um, an abnormality of some kind, it's misidentified, um, it's uh, unrecoverable, it has some fatal flaw. And this is the, the materials that people deposit with us are what they consider to be the best material they have. It's what they're using in their own laboratory. It's what they're publishing on and it's what they're sharing with their collaborators. And to see that 35% of it is problematic uh, for ongoing research is, is frankly shocking. Um, and so an initiative that will help bring attention to that, that will result in um, more attention being paid to the basic underlying quality of the materials we're using, because 
the simple fact is, if the basic underlying quality of your materials is compromised, so is your research. And we need to be sure that the research that we're putting out there as we head towards clinical trials is the best that it can be. Yes, uh, and, and the project begins with basic research standards that will build on previous recommendations for the characterization of cell lines and recommend standards to improve the reproducibility of research from lab to lab, from cell line to cell line, as you, you've just said there pretty much. But could you tell us a little bit more about the four areas you chose to focus on and why they're important specifically? Tania, let's start with you on, uh, of the four areas, let's start with one and two there, characterization and genomics. Could you speak to that? So basic characterization standards, we started with that. Um, we find that a number of the cell lines that we receive are misidentified. And so assuring that you're working with the cell line that you believe you're working in is one of the foundational first steps of assuring that the research that's getting out there is of high quality. Um, basic characterization also includes things like assuring that the materials are um, safe to use in terms of sterility, mycoplasma infection, that type of thing, and adventitious agents. Uh, and uh, and assuring that they are um, banked appropriately so that you have consistently reproducible results. Uh, genomics, um, we are seeing a number of recurrent abnormalities, particularly in pluripotent stem cells, uh, that people need to be aware of and monitor, again, to assure uh, the reproducibility of the results. Any sorts of aberration in the genomic composition of a cell can change the structure and function um, of the materials and impact research. So paying attention to those two areas um, is, is important to assure the rigor of the data and the reproducibility of the data. You're gonna hear those words a lot through this whole thing, rigor and reproducibility. Yeah, well, that's what it's all about. And I mean, besides that, you know, it's important in order to get into people, right? We need to get that that rigor and reproducibility. It's not just to, to, to be sure of the science, um, and the real great potential of these cells and why we're so wild about them for their clinical applications is their pluripotency, right? Their ability to form all of these different cell types. And Peter, you've been focusing on pluripotency for your entire career. I mean, going on 50 years now, you've been focused on since the days before ES cells. So can you speak to how the focus on pluripotency of these cells, how that weighs in in the ISSCR standards initiative? Yes, indeed. I think, in fact, in, in, in a way, this also speaks to your first question, is why, why we needed to do this now. And it's to recognize that when all of this work started, as I say, frighteningly, it was over 40 years ago that I started my career working with uh, embryonal carcinoma cells, which is the malignant counterpart of embryonic stem cells, but they come from, from a tumor known as heterocarcinoma. The field was small. There were relatively few people in it. They were talked very closely together, and the and many of the concepts evolved out of uh, developmental biology as well. So within that small field, people understood what they were talking about. But as the field has mushroomed, and it mushroomed dramatically after the uh, discovery by Shinyuyan Manaka uh, and Jamie Thompson of how to make uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. There's a lot of people who've entered the field who don't have that kind of background, who come in from all sorts of different backgrounds and don't necessarily uh, appreciate and understand some of the basic concepts on which the field was, was developed. 
And so another aspect for this initiative was really to sort of bring home to people uh, where the field came from and the meaning of some of the terms and uh, that are widely used. And pluripotency is in fact one of one of those terms. Um, it's like many uh, scientific concepts, it's one that has evolved over the years uh, and in truth has meant slightly different things to different people at different times. But the, but the core of it is the ability of a cell to differentiate into all, uh, all the somatic cells of an organism. Uh, because these cells correspond uh, to cells in the very, very early embryo, which are then able to go on and, and, and in an all embryo differentiate into all of the all of the tissues uh, of the of the of the uh, developing fetus. So a, a key issue is if you're going to say I've got a pluripotent stem cell, how how do you define that? How are you going to say that? that is a pluripotent stem cell, able to differentiate into all of those tissues. Now, the, the field began um, with people working in these corresponding cells in the laboratory mouse. And there, ultimately, the possibility is that you can incorporate these cells back into an early embryo, uh, take the, the embryo to term in a, in a pregnant female, and the animal that's born will have, and you can demonstrate, have all the tissues uh, uh, all of them could have been derived from, from the uh, embryonic, embryonic stem cells that had been implanted. That's clearly not a possibility in humans for, for very obvious reasons. We're not going to do that. So there's always looking back on the alternative ways of doing that. And the other approach that people have used over the years has been to show that uh, in tumors, for example, the cells can uh, uh, form all all cells or cells of corresponding to all germ layers. Uh, and that could be done in immunosuppressed mice. Of course, now it's becoming more and more difficult to work with, with animals. Uh, in many jurisdictions, that becomes expensive and, and, uh, and difficult to do under, under various uh, rules and regulations. And indeed, the assays are not easily too easy to control. So we've moved on to being able to differentiate cells uh, in vitro and show, show that uh, the cells will differentiate into cells corresponding to all the germ layers. So what we've been trying to do in, in, this, in this working group is really to, to home in on what are the key points that people really need to do uh, if they're going to say, we've got a pluripotent stem, stem cell line. And one of the areas that we've noticed amongst other things is that people often, again, probably without a lot of background in the area, have fallen back on simple shorthands, like using markers uh, of cells to say, these cells are pluripotent because they happen to express them. Um, and the truth is none of the markers that we have of pluripotent stem cells are uniquely expressed in pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and indeed, uh, one can get uh, um, cells which are apparently like pluripotent stem cells but have lost the ability to differentiate still expressing many of these markers. Uh, so what we were trying to do is at least educate people as well that it's uh, if you're going to develop and produce a cell line that you're going to claim is pluripotent you have to show that indeed it can differentiate 
not merely that it expresses the characteristics such as various markers on the cell surface or transcription factors that are found in, embryon in embryonic stem cells, but that the cells can actually functionally work as, uh, as cells that will differentiate. So that that was a, a sort of a key key element um, of of what we were trying to do. And if I could actually also just pass on to to Neil's point about um, genomic uh, characterization of the cells, the other aspect there is that we are um, we know that uh, a lot of cells do acquire genetic variants, and these are often recurrent. But we really don't know what their real significance is. And what we're noticing is that people tend not to report in detail what they've seen in the cells. So the other aspect that we were trying to do throughout this, this exercise is to persuade people to provide all the relevant information about their cells, uh, whether not only where they came from and what evidence that they've got that they're pluripotent, but what how they've how they've assessed that, how they've assessed what uh, the genetic uh, uh, genotype of the cells is and uh, have that fully reported so that we can look back in the future and assess work as things move along. It's a, it's a moving, still, still a moving field so that we can look back and see if there were problems that crop up in the future, we might be able to trace them back to uh, pieces of evidence about uh, for example, the appearance of particular genetic variants that we hadn't realized had a particular significance in. Um, so that was another aspect that we were trying to address. Okay, so we got the kind of safety FDA regs kind of thing from Tania. We got the, the functionality of the cells, the ability of them to actually behave as they're meant to behave. Um, and that turns to you, Madeline. I mean, you, you changed the game with your introduction of these, you know, organoids. You're... you're you're, you made a seminal contribution. You've continued to build on that with these Evo Devo models, you know, applying organoids in really amazing ways and, and developing these model systems that are really moving the field forward. Um, that, I don't know, necessarily pertains to their clinical application uh, on the surface, but it is important to have quality standards and research standards at the ISSCR for that as well. Can you just elaborate on that and uh, and how your your approach to developing those standards? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the reason we wanted to make sure that we covered these um, these new model systems that are developing is, I mean, at the end of the day, we want to be modeling real biology. We want to be modeling what's actually happening in the embryo or, you know, or in the adult or, you know, in the tumor, depending on what the model is. And so um, it's really important that these model systems, you know, even though it is such a new field and it's really changing rapidly, but it's important that we think, you know, we go back to the in vivo uh, system and we think about how can we compare these models? How can we benchmark them? And how can we be sure that they are really modeling what we say they're modeling? And so that applies to not only um, sort of uh, the model systems and the development of those model systems, but also um, how we apply them to disease modeling. So, 
for example, you know, does the model not only model the organ, but does it also model the defect that you see in patients in that organ? Mm. Um, and then, you know, how do we um, report on these models in a way that others, um, you know, other labs, others in the field can uh, reproduce these models faithfully and end up with the same results? Um, because, you know, it's really great if you've got a new organoid, for example, um, but if nobody else can do it, then it's, it's pretty useless to the, to the scientific community. So we want to make sure that, um, that these new approaches are also being reported uh, in a way that, that provides enough information to, to, you know, to get that rigor and reproducibility that Tanil um, went on about. Yeah, given the breadth of this initiative, you know, you're covering everything from pluripotency, the differentiated model systems, different model systems out there. You know, this is this is something that can impact potentially every stem cell researcher around the world, since we are, of course, an international community. Um, different countries, different institutions around the world certainly have their own approaches about standardizing stem cell research. So how have you worked to incorporate existing standards from those different institutions, locations into this comprehensive global effort? You know, we'll, uh, we'll let you answer this one, uh, Dr. Lancaster. Yeah, so I mean, with, um, I think with some aspects of the um, of the standards will be aspects that have been considered for a long time in the stem cell field. And so there's already a good um, foundation there that, that we're using to build upon. And of course, there are existing publications and um, resources out there that have uh, already addressed things like, um, you know, more generally sort of in vitro um, cell lines that are not necessarily specific to stem cells. And, you know, so those kinds of resources are there and they're definitely, um, you know, uh, influencing these standards. Some aspects though really just have not been addressed really. So there are some things here where we are, I think, um, breaking new ground and um, it's important that these are covered and especially for newcomers to these fields who, um, you know, don't necessarily already have that, uh, that sort of baseline knowledge that's, that for many of us is probably just sort of passed down from our mentors, but hasn't really been written down properly. And so this, this we're hoping will provide that um, guidance to, um, to both newcomers and I think uh, also as, a, as something to kind of um, you know, show, you know, to those of those of us who are more established in the field, who, who've been doing this for a while, it gives us a resource that we can um, give to our mentees and stuff so that they, they can also be trained um, properly. And um, yeah, so I think it, it builds upon existing resources very nicely, but also breaks new ground. Can I address that one a little bit as well? Is that, I think the question, part of the question was, um, standards within an international community, right? And how you deal with that. And that's part of the issue with standards is if everybody has one, then you really don't have one, right? If everybody has their own set of standards. Um, this work builds really nicely upon work that's been done for more than 20 years uh, in with both the International Stem Cell Initiative and the International Stem Cell Banking Initiative, as well as other multinational um, consortium projects. Uh, also, Part of that is addressed right at the beginning with the structure of the steering committee. It's very intentionally a multinational committee. 
which brings in uh, information about different sorts of regional um, and international and national standards uh, and issues that need to be well taken into consideration as we're developing this. Uh, and we're working very hard to uh, have a lot of input from the community as well. Right now, the document is out for peer review. Um, more than uh, 16 different countries are represented uh, in the review. We're working very hard to make sure that we are um, investing time in getting considerable feedback from the community to make these standards the best that they can be. And then, of course, the, the voice of ISSCR as an international organization that strives for excellence um, and rigor in what they do uh, helps with that. And it's, as you said at the beginning, it's a voice that carries some weight. Um, and the hope is that this will be a place where people can go back uh, to standards that they can trust were developed intentionally with an international consideration uh, and that kind of investment and input from the entire scientific community. You make it sound like, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, but the reality is there's a lot of moving parts and it's tough to consolidate all these different groups and, and cultures. Um, and I mean, you're an OG, Tanil. You've been in it since, I mean, I'm not trying to age you or anything. You're a young, young lady. But I mean, you've been a part of this process from the, the beginning, I would argue, of the real pluripotent stem cell boom in Bonanza at Ground Zero at Wisco and at the Y-Cell. And you saw all the regulatory apparatus and the morass and what a challenge it was to get through. You know, It was a threat even whether or not we could do the work. And, and that's why we established all, you established a lot of the apparatus that exists today. Um, but it's a different thing now, I feel like. I mean, there was there was a, a very circumscribed set of, of challenges and problems and, and points of conflict, I think, there, but now it's just so much bigger, right? There's so much more science involved. There's so many more stakeholders. Um, and you describe that international effort in part there, how, how, I mean, what the end point was, but how, how do you get there? How do you approach that? You know, any, any international collaborative effort, there's a lot of challenges to be met. And, and I think in this case, specifically, even though we're all generally on the same page, I think there's a lot of differences that need to be kind of, you know, ironed out. So what what were some of the challenges uh, that you can recall in, in developing this such an expansive document? And, and how did you overcome those challenges? Tanil? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> even within the even within steering community committee, we have had some debates about different aspects. Um, in within Peter's subgroup, uh, in particular, some of the pluripotency issues we've worked together uh, to come to consensus on that. A lot of it is, you know, you, you get a group of the best experts that you can find. Um, you look for people who have a level of experience in the field, a level of knowledge, uh, and who are also respected within the field. Um, and then you approach it, it with, a, with a mindset of collaboration and humility. Um, and you come together for some honest discussion and you work through it um, and then, you present it to your peers in the community and let them kick it around a little bit and see what that what they have to say about it and take seriously the considerations that are brought up. Um, 
to be honest, it's difficult to think of, at least in my two areas of, of things that came up that were particularly controversial. Because a lot of this is so well established over decades. I don't know that anybody is going to be shocked by any of the standards recommendations that we are making um, in, in the areas of general characterization and genomics. Madeline's group um, had the, the bigger task. Uh, and what you'll find is that a lot of the recommendations that are being made there, a lot of the standards that are being proposed are around reporting. We need to be telling each other what we're finding because that's the only way to compare the science. Um, and we, we're talking a lot about clinical application, but we have to remember a lot of this has to do with developmental biology too, just basic biology. We're now working with model systems where we can illuminate things that we haven't been able to previously in, in vitro. And so in order to be sure that the novel findings that are being presented are both accurate and reproducible is going to require understanding what was done. And so just communicating with each other as scientists internationally is going to be important in that. I'm not sure I completely addressed your question, um, but a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, with getting the experts in the room, letting them duke it out a little bit, uh, in, in relative private uh, um, to get standards that everyone in the room is comfortable with on paper um, and then putting it out to the community and, you know, and under, getting the, that level of stakeholder involvement to make sure that the standards that are coming across are, the goal of this is that they be both technically and financially feasible for basic research laboratories globally, understanding that in different regions, there's different levels of access and different levels of financial ability to get the work done. But recognizing that the research that's done all over the world is has the same level of importance and can have the same level of impact. So maybe I could just add, add a couple of examples to sort of extend what, what Tanil said, because this is very much largely an exercise in uh, compromise very often. Um, if you look at the, the genetic um, stability of, of cells, uh, we know that actually embryonic stem cells, no different from any other cell, they will acquire mutations over time. Uh, that's inevitable. So you could argue, actually, every time you work with these cells, you ought to do whole genome sequencing and you ought to analyze every, every gene in the cell. Uh, but that becomes a sort of, you know, a, a, a non-starter for most people. And it, 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 it you also would end up with a lot of data you don't want. So you then have to ratchet back and say, well, how much do, what information do we need? And that that becomes quite difficult. And, and there is still, it's an evolving area. We know that uh, some genetic variants crop up all the time. So it wasn't too difficult to argue, well, uh, people should have a look to see whether those particular variants have cropped up, but at the same time recognizing that the sensitivity of the techniques are not as good as we would want, and that some of these may not matter for the experiments in, in that are being, uh, for which the cells are being used. So it was very much, it is along the lines Tanil was saying, it's a discussion, people coming, trying to assess the, the, you know, the level of compromise that uh, is is allows it the, the experiments to proceed in a feasible way. And in the end, 
the most important bit was coming back to getting people to report on what they'd done uh, so that in the future one could look back and say well actually this is how this was done so we could understand that but actually there's there may be a hole uh, you know, which may not be evident now but will be in the future in regard to a particular uh, result so it, it is very much a compromise and discussion. Similarly, in defining pluripotency and defining how well the cells are differentiated. Ideally, if you've got a pluripotent stem cell, you would want to show that it, the cell line can differentiate into all, all somatic cell types. But that becomes an impractical proposition. So what you've got to do is to select a selection, a small number of markers question is how many markers do you look at and again that was an area of discussion and again it recognizing it depends on exactly the purpose that people are putting the cells to but the, these are you know it's it's an evolving field um and again as Tanil said we did bring into this discussion people from uh, many of the major countries uh, working in the area and building in fact on a lot of international collaboration and discussion over the years in the International Stem Cell Initiative and International uh, uh, Stem Cell Banking Initiative, uh, which involved meetings with people from many of the major countries involved in this work over the years. So you mentioned, Dr. Andrews, that there's a lot of collaboration and effort like this. And with an initiative like this, with the potential to impact so many aspects of our field, there are a lot of stakeholders too, people who have opinions and insights on this particular topic. You know, it's not just the academics, of course, the industry partners, the governmental regulatory agencies, funding and lawmaking bodies, everybody might be paying attention to something like this. So again, we'll let you build on this a little bit more, Dr. Andrews. And how have you been involving these other stakeholders, perhaps non-academic stakeholders in this particular process? Has there been contact in that way? I, th I think everyone... All the, all the key key members of the um, of the um, steering committee and the working groups do have their own links to uh, regulators to um, to um, to industry and so on. Uh, but I would say that in the first instance, what we're trying to establish here is the basic basic biological principles, basic science principles, on which those other people, like the regulators, will build. Uh, to make decisions and it's clear at the minute for example if you're thinking about genetic variants in the cells uh, if you say cell lines got this mutation in uh, and regulate and you want to ask some regulators if you use this for, for a, a treating a disease in a regenerative medicine application very often they don't know what to do with that information so and they don't know because the science isn't there and what we're trying to do here is to establish the basic science uh, to identify the areas of uncertainty as well and coming back to the issue of reporting uh, establishing a clear database a clear level of knowledge that is well validated because people follow uh, certain similar uh, rules uh, so that in future um, of these stakeholders can look at the information and say uh, what it means and how they're going to interpret it for their particular purposes. To, to add on to that, uh, in a, 
speaking specifically to additional stakeholder involvement, um, the steering committee has been reaching out to different groups, including journal editors uh, and funding agencies uh, to present them with some of the initial results of the, the steering committee's work in each of the groups to get their take on whether they're reasonable. Um, if it was particularly talking with journal editors, if, if there are standards that are recommend, recommended, how reasonable is it for the journals to look for the same sorts of issues in the manuscripts um, as we're putting forth in the, the standards initiative. Um, and we've learned a lot from speaking with these different groups about what is really reasonable internationally and what we need to adjust, uh, keeping in mind that the, that the real ultimate result is rigorous research that is reproducible um, and reliable. So we've had great discussions with them that has really shaped um, some of our direction in that. Uh, and we continue to reach out to different groups like that to be able to refine these standards. Um, and I think it's important to note also that, uh, so as I mentioned before, the document is out for peer review to the general scientific community. And it's also going to uh, members of some of these funding agencies and uh, editors um, and representatives of journals as well. But the ISSCR is gonna be having a digital program regarding the standards initiative post-review, likely sometime in November. It'll be a great opportunity for the community to see how those standards have evolved post-review uh, and where they stand after that, that level of extensive peer review. Rigor, reproducibility, and reliability. We're going to make that the title of this episode um, because really that's what it's about. I mean, we can geek out about this standards doc because we care about it. It's important to us because it means that we're all speaking the same language, right? That we have the same standard and we have consensus, as Madeline was saying there, that you know what you're modeling is faithful to the original, but also one model equals another model. And we all have the same standard language to speak. Um, so yeah, that's the scientist view. But you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the benefit that we're hoping to confer is to patients, right? Um, this is really the end game all about helping people with these regenerative therapies. So um, Madeline, this question to you, can you just elaborate on how the, the establishment of this standards doc will benefit patients? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, at the end of the day, we want to understand um, biology that, that is relevant to, to human biology. And that means also then, um, understanding, uh, you know, defects and, and issues that arise in, uh, in different disease conditions. And so, um, you know, these, by, by setting up these standards and making sure that things that we are doing rigorous and reproducible and reliable work, um, that the findings then are, are true to nature, you know, that we, when we make conclusions from whether it be, you know, studies with the pluripotent cell, cells themselves or with the model systems that uh, come from those cells or that come from adult uh, derived stem cells, you know, we wanna make sure that those findings are um, really telling us something true about the disease or even about the sort of normal human biology that we can then use um, to learn more about potential treatment strategies and 
um, you know, preventive uh, approaches. And so I think that this is focused on um, basic biology primarily at this stage, of course. So this is really for, you know, the, we're not even talking about the preclinical stuff yet. We're really just talking about learning about the basic biology, but um, you've got to start with a good solid foundation at that stage before you can expect to do anything relevant at later stages of, for example, drug discovery or developing um, cell therapies. You know, if your model system is already flawed and the conclusions that you're drawing from that are flawed, then you can go and put a million drugs on there, but it won't have any relevance to the human condition. And so it's very important that we set the stage and you know, get things highly reproducible and reliable at the beginning. And then you know, the, the rest will follow. Just quick follow-up on that. Is there a, an idea in place there for a clinical standard stock and would it be you know wildly divergent from this one or it would just be you know additive incorporating some um, essential things for the FDA maybe you could just color in there a bit yeah so you know as Madeline said what we're working on now is basic foundation good solid foundation to continue the work forward on so basic foundation for for basic and preclinical work is phase one phase two uh, which we're hoping to progress to is clinical standards, standards for material that is being developed for clinical application to go in humans. So it should build nicely. Uh, if you have followed uh, all of the standards for basics, you're in a good place to start with, but there are always additional considerations when you're looking at going into human um, that are not considered as part of the basic work. Uh, and so the clinical part will build on those certain, um, some issues that I, and without it being initiated yet, um, I'm imagining at this point, but uh, I can see that it would incorporate considerations for cell line selection um, that you may not consider when you're just doing basic research, but are absolutely critical moving into the clinic. Um, taking into consideration some of the common uh, regulatory considerations globally, because each different area, each different region has slightly different um, regulatory agencies that have different rules that you need to abide by, but a lot of them have very common foundations. So what types of issues can be addressed in a global standard that would aid the clinical community uh, in making appropriate choices upfront that can help with their ability to meet regulatory requirements uh, and on the backside mm. would be the primary, one of the primary issues in that sort of clinical standards that we set um, to, inf to help inform the community as we're looking to develop clinical therapies that are going to be translatable internationally. What types of things do you need to know to make sure that you can if you're developing a therapy in one country, make it internationally transportable. Yeah, as we've discussed, this is really an international initiative that's going to have a lot of eyes on it. And you mentioned that the document's under peer review, and I'm sure it's going to get a lot of attention when it's ultimately published. Um, ultimately, and Dr. Andrews will let you answer this one, how, how can the stem cell research community stay informed about the progress for this initiative, either pre-publication, post-publication, since it 
does have the potential to have such a wide ranging global impact? I, I think as, um, as, as uh, Tanil said, and there are plans, for example, for, for, for distributing the information um, through, uh, through meetings, through uh, the ISSER digital series, perhaps uh, through um, members of the committees uh, talking back to their uh, uh, community in their different countries. As I say, we, 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 have, we, we have a fairly wide ranging group of people already in the, in the steering committee. Um, we, I think we, we will be talking with the journal editors, for example, and trying to distribute some of these ideas through, through the journals and trying to get people on board with understanding what's involved in, in, in the recommendations, which of course would be published. And many of the relevant um, people out there are members of the ISSCR in any case, so that that will be an important uh, route for people being informed and hearing uh, the results of of, of the um, of the uh, of the of our discussions and the and the and the uh, and the document we're going to produce. Of course, it, it will undoubtedly be a moving field. Um, you know, this we're 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 producing these ideas uh, as the field stands now, but uh, the the science doesn't stand still; it moves forward. And I'm sure that over the next two or three years. Um, the, the standards document will be revisited uh, as more information becomes available on certain certain areas, for example, like the genetic uh, stability of the cell lines or how these cells are used in, um, in model systems. Yes, as you said there, you know, all this seems kind of provisional with as fast as things are moving, but I mean, it's really of critical importance to, to set these standards and we're grateful. I think we look toward the ISSCR as like a north star, um, global researchers for for what we 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 should be doing um, and and what standards we ought to follow. And we're very grateful to the three of you and other committee members, past uh, and present, um, who have taken the time out to duke it out, as Tanil said, behind closed doors and set the standard for all of us other researchers and to do it as you said also in a way that's so uh deliberate and, and 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 thoughtful that by the time it comes to us it seems obvious but i mean these are really important questions and they're not getting any easier thanks again to, to you three for coming on the show today to share all the details uh we, we really appreciate your service thank you so much for having us we appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important initiative and to uh, uh, to go a little further in getting the word out to the to the community um, about the standards initiative uh, and uh, point people towards again that um, ISSCR digital series in November to hear more about it. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this special episode with the ISSCR leadership. We learned a lot and hope you did too. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. In a couple weeks, we'll be back with another episode from Prisca Liberale. So be sure to join us for that one. Until then, thanks for listening.